people drive by my shop and go, Gerardi machine. I mean, what's in there? A machine? Like, yeah, well, good gas. <laughs> you know, but it's true, though, right? Like, what's behind the door? Gerardi yeah. machine? What? Machine what? Like, it, it's you, there's a big black hole there, right? And You're listening to Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli, and in today's episode, Brandon and I take a drive down to St. Catharines, Ontario, to have a socially distanced conversation, are there any other kinds nowadays, with Niagara's own Aaron Tisdell, president of Girardi Machine, to discuss his experiences in Ontario's advanced manufacturing ecosystem. Now, on a personal note, I should say that St. Catharines, Ontario has a special place in my heart. It's where my maternal grandparents lived and raised my mom and my uncle when they first came to Canada in the mid-1950s. Some 30 years later in Toronto, I was born and spent most of my weekdays for the first few years of my life living with nonna and nonno. I didn't know much about the world, nor could I speak any English as a child back then, but at the time, I knew what my nonno did for a living. He was a bricklayer. He laid the bricks in the home my mom and uncle lived in, and my grandmother, I suppose, too. And in fact, it was the home, the same home that my grandparents were now raising me in. In fact, perhaps by coincidence, perhaps not, both of my nonnos were bricklayers. My dad's dad had the same profession back in Italy. One of my first memories as a child in St. Catharines, in fact, is of nonno mending the brick fence leading to the garden, a structure that still stands today. I learned from a young age that things needed to be built or made or manufactured or grown if it's organic because damn right nonna had a garden. I knew then where that wall came from. In fact, I knew where all the walls in the house came from. They came from Nonno. And where did the tomatoes come from? They came from Nonna. Learning this as a child dramatically changes the way you view the world. And I would imagine it's the same for all children. I mean, I'm no expert, but it did for me. The question of where does this come from can become a catalyst for curiosity with the potential to do a lot. As a child, it made me ask things like, where was this made? How was this made? Hey, who made this? Hey, what else can they make? Can they make toys? That curiosity drives kids to make sandcastles and pretend to race cars, at least it did with me. And that curiosity can, and at least has, even taken people to work. At least it has historically. Today it's a different story. It seems like nothing is fanning the flames of that curiosity of the origin of things. Ontario took the consequences of not asking these questions on the chin during the outbreak of COVID-19 in early 2020. As we scrambled to answer those questions, where was this made? How was it made? Who made it? And what else can they make? The marketplace of people looking to make a career out of making things is, well, it's got some challenges. And Aaron from Girardi faces those challenges seemingly as a second career. You know, his first one being owning and running a machine shop. We asked him his opinion, and did he have a lot to say? He shared his insights on many things, like the growing skilled trades gap and what he'd like to see done about it. We talked about his shop floor and the work environment he actively tries to create and curate every day. And we discussed the need for more clarity on what exactly a job in manufacturing can mean for a young person entering the workforce. Now, full disclosure, this episode is quite long. Aaron's experiences as a machine shop owner are matched only by his passion for his work and his compassion for his staff. 
In this episode, he delivered extemporaneously what Trillium has been saying for years now on issues like skilled trades, like gender diversification, like the cultural shift needed on manufacturing jobs. He said it all. Aaron is struggling with the same problems almost all manufacturers are struggling with, finding, hiring, and keeping good people. The first two are largely affected by forces outside of yourself. You can't hire people if you can't find them. And that's a problem that, well, let's just say we'll come back to that when we have something else to say. However, once you do find them, keeping them in your employ is up to you as a business owner, as a boss, and yes, even as a mentor. Aaron seems to thrive on that aspect of his business and had no trouble giving examples of his employees thriving in their jobs. His passion was infectious, and we went way longer than we were supposed to. But I gotta be honest, it was good to see St. Catharines again. Have a listen and see for yourself how Aaron Tisdell and Gerardi Machine are making it in Ontario. We are sitting in the boardroom of uh, Gerardi Machine, and we are speaking with... Introduce yourself, please, sir. Uh, it's Aaron Tisdell here from Gerardi Machine. I am the third generation uh, president and owner of Gerardi Machine, started by my grandfather and his brothers in 1947. Wow. Yeah, we're celebrating 75 years this year, so fantastic. Congratulations. Thank and you. we're also joined by my boss, Brendan Sweeney. And, uh, <laughs> colleague. Colleague. <laughs> so, yeah, we are here, and we're talking about advanced manufacturing. Aaron, thank you so much for having us. Oh, thanks for having me. I really enjoy this kind of stuff, so I'm, I'm glad I was asked uh, to participate in this. Yeah, well, when we first met, like, we haven't, we, I think we met, like, once before, right? We did. We met one year ago, very close to this date. That's yeah. right. That's right. And we, we just kind of... We clicked. We did click. Well, you put two Italians in the same room together, and usually they get along. You know, <laughs> and, I'm they're, and they're artists. Yeah, and, and we're artists. artists. Yeah, so no, it's very true. We did, and and at the time we were both representing uh, separate associations, uh, but we could see the you know sort of that that there was potential for our associations to connect. So um, I at the time, and I still am the vice chair of the Niagara Industrial Association, and recently we've been connecting with Brandon and the Trillium Manufacturing Group to. To sort of bring um, a little, I, I would say a little bit louder of a voice to the trades in Ontario, and and uh, really celebrate what we have already, and recognize the immense amount of skill and knowledge that we have in Southwest and Southeast Ontario. And I mean, you know, I often think about this. We are we are Upper Canada. Um, we are uh, we we. Niagara is like the first capital of Canada after the War of 1812 moved to Ottawa. But, you know, what went on in southern Ontario and southwestern Ontario in the early days of, of Canada as a dominion has influenced our us as manufacturers still to this day. Right, Like that innovation, that niche service, that, that creativity, um, that just pure desire to grab onto something and, and do it is a very Ontario thing. So... Um, it's a great thing, right? It was that attitude that kind of, that I think is the reason we clicked. I would we agree. spent a good chunk of time that first time we met just talking about your shop, how you, how you keep talent, how you motivate your employees, right. how you, yeah. and I remember thinking even back when I was at APMA, I was like, this is, this is a cool thing. I really wanted to, I wanted to delve in more, but you know, I was strictly relegated to automotive Yeah. now at Trillium. Our mandate is to do exactly what we were discussing that day, which is fantastic, right? Like, yeah. I, I, again, I can't say enough for what. Like, I mean, 
you know, kind of di to, to diverge from the conversation. You know, I, I couldn't be more proud of our governments, both provincial and, and federal, and what they've done for us during these brutal times that COVID's brought down on us. But beyond that, there is always an incentive. There's always a program. There's always a study. There's always something going on that's recognizing the trades, our, our need for more tradespeople, and, and the conversation of how are we going to get more tradespeople is becoming more and more uh, heard, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's more relevant than ever. Yeah. So, you know, I think uh, you're right. Like, that connection is based off something that, you know, you saw in the automotive sector, um, which is f filled with tradespeople, and that I'm seeing, you know, in my little microcosm at Girati Machine, um, which is a machine shop and a weld shop, but we're starving for machinists. I, and I, I talk with other owners in Niagara, um, and it was an interesting thing because I was on the phone with two other guys, and we each represented half of the other. So the shop, I, one of the shops was, so I'm 30 guys, one of the shops was 15, and the other shop was 60. And we all had the same problem, which was finding talent, recruiting talent, and keeping that talent, right? So, you know, again, it, it it's like, I typically look at what's going on in my facility and in my world and say often that's the same for most of our other manufacturers to some degree or another. But I mean, with skilled trades, that's across construction, manufacturing of all types. Um, the population of young people is getting smaller. The population of baby boomers that were filling these seats is retiring. And us three are stuck in the middle trying to figure out what the heck to do about it. Right. So yeah. um, it's a wonderful thing to have this conversation and bring it home to people. Yeah. Well, you mentioned so finding, recruiting and keeping talent. Yeah. Finding and recruiting is a, is a problem that, you know, we're all it's a problem for everybody. So it's a problem for no one. But tell me a little bit about how what you do to keep them. So, once you, find them. you know, that that is um, a huge piece. Right. So because um, there's often been this this uh, sort of malaise in Niagara where People will train uh, machinists in small shops, um, but in the old days, uh, other companies, larger companies, will come and grab them up. Um, and not like other local companies. It would be like larger manufacturers like General Motors or Hastane or this kind of thing that would gobble these, these young people up and you'd lose talent that you invested in. Now, the, the concern is, is more trying to keep our young people engaged, right? So... I mean, it takes a specific type of young person to want to get into manufacturing in the first place. And I mean, our young people are leaving high school at 17, 18 years old, which is younger than what we left high school at, right? So there's a, a smaller piece of maturity there. And one of the pieces I find um, is, is that there is a sense of, so, you know, you're in your last year of high school, you know what um, university looks like, you know what college looks like. Um, we've all seen the movies, right? Pete's Party, um, Study Hall, Dirty Dorm Room. Um, but no one knows what a manufacturing situation looks like. No one knows what's behind that door of the trades. Um, and, and, and for me to tell them, oh, it's a really big machine shop that uh, you come to work at 7 and you get to go home at 3.30. So essentially when you're 18 years old, you're already 40, right? Like that, that it's a tough one for young people to swallow that they basically step into adulthood um, right there and then in, into the trades. Now, the other piece of that is they were at the top of the pile in high school. Now they're, they're at the bottom of the pile. And I think that's a mental health thing or a, a, an ego thing or something that all young people go through, whether they're going to college or university or into the trades. 
Um, but university and college have mechanisms to deal with these things, right? They have guidance counselors. They have, the, they have these support systems within the institution. As a small machine shop, I mean, I don't even have an HR. Uh, I have an HR outside consultant, but I don't have HR directly in my building. So in a lot of instances, I ended up being HR and helping my young people through some of these early, more difficult stages of coming from high school and into the workplace. Now, that's not the case with every one of them, but it's a big piece, um, you know, of where and what kind of care we need to, to exhibit to our young people coming into the trades, right? And I think that ultimately is your retention piece, is that if you take them in at that age and you become that next piece in their life to grow them, to bring them to a place where they can buy their first car, start saving for a down payment on a house. You know, they, they can share like, oh, I got a girlfriend. Oh, we're going steady. Oh, now we're getting married. I mean, you're with this young person for a period of time. They become part of your company family. And I really think that is where the retention piece exists with our young people in this generation is how do we look after them? Um, not just what are we giving them, co- you know, money-wise. What am I paying you? It's a, p- a big piece of it is is caretaking, you know. Can you tell me a little bit more about that when you said you take them under your wing and you handhold them? Um, obviously, you can't do that for an entire industry, but we're trying to figure out the nitty-gritty. Of what was involved in that handholding? Whether it was professional, like I, yeah, I think there was some personal stuff. I think stuff. sometimes it, it's just an ear um, and a... And a a shoulder at times, you know, but I think what it is, again, it goes back to the great unknown that is the years after high school. And and I think a lot of people live that, right? Like we, we, you know, ourselves possibly included where I'll be dead honest, a big piece of what I do and why I do this for young people is because I know the years between 17 and 21 are fraught with any type of pit hole, right? Drug abuse, um, random crime, uh, pregnant teen pregnancy. I mean, the the list goes on of pitfalls that our young people can come into in those years, and they're so so fragile, so fragile. The chemicals are changing in them still, right? They they are not full, fully, fully developed. I mean, don't get me wrong; these are young adults. But um, so a big piece of what I have to do is sometimes just sit and listen and, and give guidance. Um, a big piece of what I say and repeat is things get better. Life gets better. Things get better after 25 is, is a common one. And it's very true, right? Like having, having the luxury of being 46 and looking back on life, I know that life was easier for me from 25 to now. Um, you don't have those same challenges as you did because you built through those young years of 17 to 25, but, you know, they, these young people are still, they still have these challenges and they don't know that, right? They don't know that 23 is better than 21 and 25 is better than 23, that they'll have a new car and a place and a this and a that. And really, a lot of our young people are still living at home with their parents. And that could be a good situation or it could be a hard situation, right? But it is their situation. And that's, you know, often their friends have gone away to college or university or they're doing this job during the day and their friends are in the service industry. So they're in the bars or, or restaurants in the evening. So there's a loneliness factor going on there, you know. Um, so it's all a lot of it is um, that mental health piece of just being, you know, I mean, you think of our young people and the high schools. And I mean, I don't know about you guys, but you did not call a high school teacher by their last name when we went to high school. 
it was Mr. and Mrs. This, right? Right. Now you talk to young people and they call their teachers like by their last name. So it's like Tisdale or whatever, right? Um, and th- so this is a piece of closeness that the teachers are trying to bring and connectivity that they're trying to bring to their students. But what you also see as a byproduct of that is them actually taking care of the students in some way, mentally, um, spiritually, whatever that looks like, right? So, you know, those walls are breaking down and then those kids have that expectation that these adults are looking out for them. And I don't think it's a bad expectation. I don't think it's unreasonable. I think the world is a terrifying place um, for anyone, especially at this point. But, you know, coming out of high school, it's I think life is scary. And our young people... They're still so young. They're still so young. 17 years old as a baby. Um, you know, I, I don't say that to be detractive from them, but there is a lot that goes on in the world between 17 and 25, and we just have to take care of our little ones and get them there, you know? Because yeah. uh, that's a hard spot. But. It is. I, I vaguely remember being that age and thinking, I don't know what the heck I'm going to do. Right? It's true. Like, it's a black hole. And I often tell these young people, like, don't, the worst thing you can do is procrastinate. Yeah. That's the worst thing. Right. It's just to sit around and think like, well, what am I going to do? What am I going to the, the The question they ask themselves or they challenge themselves with is, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Well, newsflash, you won't. Jesus, if you get into the workforce at 17, you're going to have five jobs before or the, the one job that you have will morph into five jobs. Again, I have a young lady. She started here at she did two co-ops with me in her senior year of high school. I hired her on Ontario Summer Grants uh, or Canada Summer Grants Grants. And then um, I hired her on first-year apprentice. She went through the apprentice program all three years. Year one, she's like, I don't know if I can do this. I said, you can do it. You can do it, right? She she continued on the program. Um, she was running a small A that threw apart, freaked her out, obviously. So she needed a breather. So I said, okay, let's bring you over into, an inspection, into inspection. Well, she's running my CMM Romer arm. She's doing, I would say, 80% of the inspection in-house. She runs the all the nuclear inspection in the facility. She's submitting paperwork to the customer that's like I's are dotted, T's are crossed. I mean, you're telling me this girl is going to be an inspector her whole career at Dryde Machine? Absolutely not. She's already management material. She's only 21. But she's already learning and moving. And, you know, at the point, like I... I'm so proud of her. Beyond words proud of her. Is she here? She is here, yeah, for sure. We might be able to buttonhole her at some point or another. Do we want to, if, if you want, yeah. Not quite, I, you know what, I, I throw her into the lion's den on a regular basis, and it's <laughs> International Women's Month, am I right, isn't it? So I'm like, okay, Sienna, I'm lining you up for something, but I just haven't told you yet, So because I know there's <laughs> events going on, right? So, yeah. Um, but yeah, when we're on the shop floor, you know what, if we go for a walk, we can, we can grab her and, and chat with her, or even better, Nick, would be to put her together and we could have a conversation solely based around that experience because i think that would be an amazing piece that you could release to other young people right is here are these words from this young lady who has literally gone through this like you know getting younger people get uh uh, getting younger people interested in all things manufacturing absolutely um, engaging women yeah um, I mean, these are huge, or would you agree that these are huge priorities for, for manufacturing? 100%. And it's, it's kind of like we get to a point that, hey, this makes moral sense. Yeah. And it makes economic sense. 100%. And when you, when you line that up, just 
Let, uh, let's go do it. And but we need these examples. Yeah. So this example of of, yeah. of Siena, um, the more people hear, hear that story and go, "Wow, that could be me." Whether they're young, whether they're a woman or a young woman. Absolutely. You know who needs to hear that story? Is that young person's mom and dad. Yes. Those are the ears that we need to get to, right? So that's a big push in the Niagara Industrial Association is to actually engage the parents and let them know what's happening. So um, for the past three years, I've done this. uh, It's a panel. I'm on the panel with um, Niagara Workforce Planning Board and the Catholic School Board here in Niagara put together a pathway summit and it basically just explores career paths and that the the audience is moms and dads and kids from i think grade six to grade 10 so you're really speaking to this audience of of before they get into that career path choosing of grade 11 um and i'll, I'll tell you my favorite event of the year because i have the ear, ear of the parents right and and i can just pound home to them like first you you can talk about like that yes we need these young people we need people in the trades and you can talk about what it actually looks like but the best thing to talk about is that hey they'll be earning benefits 3 months after they start with me at 17 and a half years old the mom goes no kidding then you tell them hey they'll be earning a pension and I'll be matching at 4% in 2 years from when they start with me so what they start earning a pension at what 19 20 what do you think about that mom and dad you haven't spent a dime because we pay for the apprenticeship program. They're living at your house. So, okay, so you're feeding them. What's new, right? <laughs> yeah. You're not dishing out 150 k to university, right? They're yeah. buying their own car because they're saving money. I mean, it's my favorite event because I get to do that like dot to dot to dot for the parents and the parents go, oh, wow, you know? And, and the other piece of that is manufacturing isn't just a machinist and a welder. Manufacturing is a scheduler. Manufacturing is a purchaser. It is a estimator. It is a bookkeeper. It is the list goes on as to what other jobs exist within a manufacturing facility, right? Logistics, shipping and receiving, general labor, like inspection, right? And these, again, I mean, no one knows what these things are. Like no one knew what a barista was until Starbucks started calling them baristas. But like that was a job somewhere else and it was a name, right? Like we have, there are names of careers that we don't know until you get into that industry. And that's what people don't know. Like people drive by my shop and go, Gerardi machine. I mean, what's in there? A machine? Like, yeah, well, good guess. <laughs> you know, but it's true though, right? Like what's behind the door? Gerardi yeah. machine, what machine, what? Like it, yeah. it's, you, there's a big black hole there, right? And, yeah. and, and it's like, it's up to us who know not only to let them know, but like I said, you can't present it as like, hey, come on and be 40 already. You're only 19, right? Like you're going to wake up at six o'clock. You're going to be at work all the time. And I'm going to ask you to work Saturday morning because I got work coming out my ears. So maybe you'll get out to see your friends this weekend. You know, oh boy, like we got to sell it in a different way than that, right? So like that, that's where what like the, all the other pieces come into play, right? Like what kind of wage you can earn what your benefits are, what your pension is, what your future looks like, the growth in the company, the other opportunities in the company, right? Like I've got a bunch of guys on my floor right now that are my peers. So they are in their early 40s, mid 40s. Um, And then the the next tier up is 55 to 65. And then the tier down is, you know, this 17 to 25, right? So there are huge gaps in this company in terms of the age demographic. So, you know, I'm already talking with these three or four guys that are my contemporaries, my peers, and saying, like, 
you know, in five years, in 10 years, we are going to be the driving force of this company. Like these are, these, and by far they're my top machinists, right? So like, what are they going to retain? What are they going to pull from like my current supervisor, my cousin Len, who's 59, right? So, I mean, he's got six, seven years maybe. Like, what are those guys going to be able to use from everything that he's taught them over the years to then be my supervisors, my schedulers, my estimators, you know, my people, my my next tier of management, right? Like, that's my next tier of management is already on my shop floor, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, you just got to keep growing and growing and growing. Otherwise, you'll die, you know? Yeah. Um, one of the... We just put out that report. I think we were. I don't know if we told you about the, about uh, women in manufacturing. Yes. And the uh, did I send that to you? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So we realized that. Um, Brennan, do you want to do you want to talk about the report a little? Because I, th- I feel like you might know it a little better than I do. Sure, sure. And the, I mean, I think we started that. I mean, it, it's it's no. There's no real question that um, uh, one of our primary competitive advantages in Ontario in manufacturing is people. We have good people and it's hard to find and, but it's hard to find people. Right. And when we do find people, they're good. Right. When we, when we, when we train a machinist and get them on the shop floor, they're world-class. We just need more of them. Yes. And then we said, okay, well, you know, there's, there's, there's a few places we really should start then. And one of them is women and, you know, as, as is borne out in the data, women have made up 29% of the manufacturing workforce today, 10 years ago, 30 years ago. And it really hasn't, it really hasn't changed. And, um, and so we said, okay, let's focus on, I mean, if, if we want to encourage more women to, um, to go into manufacturing and encourage more, more manufacturers to, to think long and hard about how they're going to engage women, mm-hmm. let's find a few that have really moved the dial. Absolutely. Honda, yeah. um, Sanofi, and so we're, do, we're automotive one day, we're, we're doing pharmaceuticals the next day, oh, wow. and, yeah, and, there, and there were just some real lessons in there. Yeah. One is that it's not going to happen by accident. No. Like, you've got you've to go out and, and, and get it. And another one, too, is that there is, and maybe this is... Um, Maybe there's a generational element to this. Maybe not. Mm-hmm. But there's this kind of like, oh, are are we ready for it? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, everybody's. Yeah. It's it's yeah. 2021. We're ready to. I think we're ready for it. It's like, basically yeah. our again. It's our generation becoming the new owners, the new managers, the new like we are going to run the, the the you know running the future in a sense, right? And I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I was raised by two hippies. My mom was a hippie <laughs> through and through, right? So. Like there was no concept of like men are better than women in my, my one where I grew up. Like that was not even like, so I don't hold that. Like I'm, I'm like, what do you mean you pay a woman less? Like, how does that even make sense in morally, ethically, practically? Like, I, I don't get it. Right. Like it just is not a, it just does not compute for me. So like when I have an opportunity to bring a young woman, it's, it's like, okay, yeah. I mean, you know, like it's an, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. It's not a gender-specific yeah. industry, right? Like, yeah, okay, a guy can lift more weight, but if you're lifting more than forty pounds in my shop, you got a hole in your head. I got cranes. I got buggies. I got like, <laughs> what's the matter with you lifting that by hand? Like, right? Like, that's yeah. where we're at 
is use technology because you don't have to lift 100 pounds anymore. So, you know, that young lady can do that job. I mean, again, I'm so proud of Sienna. And what makes me like, I love this as I'm watching her inspect a part and she's got nails that are like an inch long and they're bright pink. I'm just like, (laughs) you are awesome, kid. Like, it's just, but she's doing her job. She, like, the guys are like, Sienna, can you come in and inspect my part? I, I checked it, but I want you to check it. Like, this is the, and then, and I mean, the care that these guys have brought into not just her, but our young people. I mean, that's a piece in itself, right? Is you have manufacturers, so machinists, welders, tradespeople in general. These are proud people. This is, they do a good job, not because the boss says do a good job. They have a work standard and ethic, right? They want the job done right because they want to do it right. You know, as, as soon as they get someone to mentor, it's like the, it brings these wonderful fatherly qualities out of them. It allows them to share these skills that they've developed over the years. It makes them proud to see this young person grow and learn and develop underneath their mentorship and using their skills, using things they've taught them. I mean, you want a good feeling? That's a good feeling. And our guys get it when they work with young people, right? So like, again, it's like bring this into your shop and the positivity and the good energy that your your workforce will experience from bringing in young people is is amazing, right? Like you want a boring shop? Have a whole bunch of 50 and 60 year old guys. You want to you want to have some energy in your shop? Bring in some young people as apprentices because they do. They change like that was the environment before I took over. There weren't young apprentices. When I took over and I started bringing that young energy in, I mean, the shop changed. Like, you know, um, culturally it changed, right? And this is what we need. We need good culture in our companies too, you know? But that's the hardest part, right? Because, like, if it's a law, you go to the relative, you know, to, to the respective governing body. Yeah. You say, change this law because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. But changing culture. That's a big piece. Yeah. That's a big piece. Well, again, I was fortunate in that, like, you know, so yes, bringing young men into manufacturing makes sense, right? Um, bringing a young lady in, I was fortunate. I'm fortunate. So I have a daughter. Um, and I would say eight out of the 10 parents, like guys that have kids in the shop, have daughters. So it was it was a really easy grab for them. And and again, you you want you got a bunch of papa bears, right? Like no one is messing with this young lady. Not under our watch, right? So I was I benefited from that kind of um just, you know, hap uh, a happenstance, I guess you could say, right? That that most of these guys have daughters, so they have that in them, that nurturing quality for a young woman to be like, I'm going to protect you and I want to look out for you and I want to grow you and learn and, and all these things, right? So, um, but I really don't, again, like you say, it, it, you you can't enforce culture. Forger, culture has to be developed in a company. Um, it has to grow within the walls of the company and it has to be led at the top level and, and it has to be encouraged at the bottom levels, right? And all levels in between. Um, what I, When I took over the shop, um, there wasn't a lot of connectivity between the owner and the, the shop floor. Um, I worked on the shop floor for a year uh, and then moved into the, I mean, I'm family, right? So I worked on the floor to learn what we did. I moved into the office to start doing sales. I saw the writing on the wall in terms of where my cousin at the time was at and his age and what the transition looked like, which was not much. So I said, hey, what do you think about this? And he loved it, right? Like, um, 
And then the guys on the shop floor were like, you were an undercover boss for eight months. And I'm like, not really, but good one. Um, (laughs) But really what that ended up accomplishing was that I learned what we did on the shop floor. I got to know my guys as people, right? Because I'd hang out, I'd talk with them, I'd do this, we'd work together. I learned so much from these guys because I was the new guy. And they'd be like, oh, go help him or go help him. So I'm helping him or him. And they're saying, do this, do that, do this, do that. So, you know, I, um, a big piece of what I did when I was on the shop floor was simply sweep the floors. I swept the floors a ton. But I took that opportunity. I'd be sweeping beside the boring mill. I'd be like, oh, Freddie, what do you got on there? So he'd show me the drawing, show me the part, show me the drawing. Next day, it's still up there. What are you doing now, Freddie? Show me the drawing, show me the part, show me the drawing. Three weeks later, the part's still on there because it's got 200 hours on it because it's this gigantic whatever from ArcelorMittal to Fasco or whatever, right? And I'm like, I cannot believe you are still focused on this. You are still at, you're, you, you were thinking of your last step in the first step. Like that was where I understood how committed and forward thinking and dedicated and meticulous and patient these guys were with the work we were doing, right? Like, it's not a five-hour job. It's a 200-hour job. And he's got to make sure that on hour 199, he doesn't mess it up because we've got hundreds of thousands of dollars into that part at this point, right? So there was just this, like, realization that these guys are are truly artists. And what they're doing, you know, you, you often say it's written in stone. This is written in steel. I mean, yeah, you can weld repair it, but try explaining that to your customer, right? Like weld repairs are okay sometimes, you know what I mean? So um, it, it, it was stunning, right? So like that progression that I had through this company in the early days that I was here really helped me understand what I needed to bring to the company when I, when I bought it and became the owner. And a big piece of that was culture and what can I do to make my guy's life better? You know, um, if I had to, if I had to name my, my job in this company, if I had to say, this is what I truly want to do within this company, it would be to make my employees' lives better. That's the long and the short of it, right? So we can do that in so many ways, but that is the overarching concept of what I should be doing as the president of the company and what I truly want to do, right, is bring positive change to people's lives in the workplace so they're not bringing it home with them. And and like to me, a failure is if one of my guys leaves work and talks negatively about the day at the dinner table. That's a failure for me. Because I want them, if it, I want them leaving it here for one. And if for one, I don't want it even happening, right? Like them leaving with baggage. Uh, but really, you know, for me, I want them to be able to leave work at work because it's been a positive day. And go home to their family because they work hard. That's why we work, right? To maintain a house, to maintain our family and, and all those things. That's what we're doing. So for them to leave work and for that work to bleed over into home, other than in a positive way, that doesn't work for me. You know, so you talk about culture. That's, that's where I want to be with my company one day, you know. So let me ask you this. Let's say tomorrow... Aaron Tisdale becomes Minister Tisdale of mm. Ministry of Training Colleges and Universities. What would you what 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 would what would your ministry what are what, how would you start to change this stuff? Because I know you can't change laws, but what are some of the key points you would probably want to bring to that ministry? 
So, you know, when we talk about the Ministry of Training Skills Development, um, Sorry, they, they, the they often, no, that's okay. They, they often bleed that concept with getting our unemployed employed. And with all due respect, at times one doesn't have anything to do with the other. There are not, there are people, and, and I do not mean to be negative in this, but there are people that do not want to work or they don't want to be trained, but they continuously, the government continuously wants to train them and they, they hang their, the potential for their subsidy check on that training. And it's not fair to the person and it's not fair to the employer and it is not a sound use of our money, right? Um, you got to find, so if, if it was, if I had that ability, I would promote skilled trades directly out of high school. I would take money and I would feed it directly to the company underneath an organization like the YMCA or the job gym or an association like Trillium or the CTMA, someone who has the uh, administrative back to manage the program. Right. And they have this, they, they, like the YMCA has got this down, right? Like, so you, your Eves Landry grant or your Koji grants, any of those need a time tracking. You need to account for the hours that they're paying you for, you, you know? So all this, um, like when I did the Eves Landry grant, they, they funded 25% of cross training. We had to report that training. We showed them the pay stubs of this, that, and the other. It's not just like, here's a bag of money, right? Like these programs exist and they do well. This one would look like basically that money growing directly into the company to support the growth of that employee because that's what the problem is. A big piece of it is I don't have the money to train new people, even though it's an investment, right? Like, you know, putting away for your RSPs or the future, you're saying, hey, I only got 50 bucks and 50 bucks is better than no bucks, right? So, you know, we know that investments are, uh, we need to make those investments, but it's often difficult to bring in a young person and support that because it's not just the young person you're paying. You're paying the machinist who's training them to take time and, and show them, right, and materials, and they're losing production. So if you're training a kid for two hours a day, you're not getting an eight-hour day out of that employee, right? Um, so, you know, you need a way to subsidize the company directly. Like, often I've thought about, um, you know, reaching out to retirees, like retired machinists, you know, maybe in those fall winter like early spring months where you know they're not on the golf course they're not hanging around in the yard or camping or at the trailer or at the cottage or down in florida or whatever it looks like for the winter and so you know but taking them and saying hey can can you give us or this company that company so a retired machinist at a gerardi machine who knows how to run that machine that you need to train someone directly on so as you know like everybody's got machines but no one's got the same machines, right? Like it's a toss nook, it's a foot nook, it's a Heidenheim, it's this, it's that. And and the machine it's on is different than the last one the guy ran a Heidenheim on. You know, so it's it makes it difficult to just say like, oh, we're going to cross train. Well, or we're going to bring a third party trainer in. And what is it? The sweat def, that, that one, uh, that one stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, it wants you to bring third party training into your company. Well, that's great for cr- cranes and tow motors and first aid and stuff like that, but it's no good for a machinist because where's the third party coming from? It has to be someone that used to work for you in a sense, right? So, I mean, I think really that that money needs to just come right to the like boots on the ground, right? But 
you know, money's money, and and it, it will. It's it's as I usually say, it's a great lubricant in life. It won't solve your problems, but it sure make things a hell of a lot easier. But I think that support needs to come, and it, it really is. You know, like I've only been involved in this for say five years, um, and the conversation has gotten louder and louder every year. So I think we're headed in the right direction, right? And I think like again, you go to a, a, like a generational thing where. We are well aware, like people in their 40s and mid 40s, uh, whether you're in the industry, um, like as an owner or whatever that might look like, you're well aware of what your workforce looks like. You're well aware of what you're losing when these guys retire. So like you don't invest in in the future. You don't have a future. It it's really is that simple, right? So people do invest. Um, so, you know, again, manufacturers are, it's like, what's the next corpse over the castle wall? Right. Okay. So steel tariffs. Oh, pandemic. Oh, you know what I mean? Like what's next? That's manufacturing in a nutshell. So it's not that we're, we are solutions oriented people, right? So we deal that we deal or we play the cards we're dealt always. We influence the deck as well. Um, So it's not a matter of gimme, gimme, freebie, freebie for manufacturers. I think it's just like a support mechanism that actually affects them boots on the ground. Not like hey, I can put this unemployed person through this three-month program um, of a pre-apprenticeship program, and they're going to be fit for your shop floor. Not a bloody chance. Not on my shop floor, because I got parts that are too expensive. I got machines that are bigger than a house. Like, you're not putting a pre-apprenticeship guy on that, man. That guy's dead, right? Like, (laughs) or your parts scrapped, right? Like, 30 grand in the garbage. Like, it just doesn't, it doesn't work, right? Maybe for a punch and parts manufacturer, maybe for, you know, Atlas Steel, something like that, where I just need a guy on the end of a grinder. Okay, sure, makes sense. But in, in, a, in a niche market machine shop, it does not make sense, right? So it's up, it needs to be up to the, the team, the internal team to train that young person specifically to that skill set for that company, right? Because Girardi Machine is different than FBT. FBT is different than JTL. JTL is different than CMI. Like these, uh, we all exist here in Niagara. And if we compete against each other on three jobs in a year, it's a miracle, right? We all do. If you're still alive in Niagara, it's because you're a niche company. It's not because you're still pounding parts from GM or Hayes Dana. They don't exist, right? Like that, that, that kind of cookie cutter machine shop, it doesn't exist anymore. It is specific to an industry, specific to a, a style, right? Like Girardi machine is medium to large custom machining. You know, we, we do repair work. We don't have long contracts, big contracts for, you know, um, uh, what do you call them? Like uh, Siemens big uh, generators or this kind of thing, right? Like we don't have, but other companies do, right? Like we don't do mining, but other companies do, right? But they don't do what we do. So it really works, right? So we can pass work around in the region, like, I, I brought a project in from uh, Philly. It was a big chunk of steel mill. Um, and the guy said, the price is right, but the delivery date sucks. I'm like, okay, what's the delivery date? A month earlier. I'm like, oh, yeah. No problem, right? Like, half million dollar job? We'll just turn that over a month earlier. I said, let me talk to some folks in the region and see what I can do. So I got on the phone. I called about four or five partners, and we were able to deliver on time. So, you know, and again, big parts, right? So I needed a weld shop. I needed another machine shop with big machines. I needed, you know, I needed all these other partners that did stuff like us, but weren't us, but they could handle this work. 
And we managed to win this contract and turn it around in their time frame and hit the budget and hit the due date, right? So a really awesome feeling. I mean, the NIA is working on this concept of like the Niagara shop floor where we, we take these opportunities that need collaborative efforts that need, they're larger than one shop and we try and work them as partners with or work them in partnerships and hit these deliveries, right? I mean, you know, there's steel mill builders down in the States that are like, oh, we need a new table like this, that they like, they're going nuts down there, right? Like I think Biden just threw a ton of money at the infrastructure or is going to, and it's all based on U.S. steel. Well, who do you think's building those steel mills? Canadians, right? Like, I mean, or at least we're trying, you know what I mean? So there's huge opportunity in their growth for us, right? Because I think when the steel tariffs were on, Michigan, New York, Pennsylvania, like those good northern partners of Ontario were like, what is going on here? I got no problem buying my stuff from Ontario. What's, what is the problem, right? Like it was, I don't think they understood what was going on in that. So, you know, like we have a really strong partnership with the North U.S. because of what we do, right? We're all surrounding the Great Lakes. We're all industry We've all been filthying up the Great Lakes for 100 years, basically, right? So we're all in it together, you know, but or for better or worse. It's true. It's true. But, you know, that that's I think those are realities that Niagara has and that that are huge opportunities for us. Right. Um, We love to not fly our flag, though. Right. We love to be like, shh, we're doing this. But you know what? I don't want to toot my own horn. I don't want to. I'm not. I'm we're too humble. Right. Like, and it's awful that we're too humble because really we should be celebrating what we do. Right. Like the things that go on in Ontario in terms of create what we're creating, what we're manufacturing, what we're building, the contracts we're bringing in from all over the world is something that we should be celebrating, be proud of. Um, But manufacturers by nature are humble and modest people. They don't brag about this kind of stuff. But it's not bragging. It's celebrating, right? But we don't do it enough. And I'm glad, like, you know, organizations like ours, we take that opportunity to celebrate what our members are doing and raise that flag a little bit higher and and congratulate them and say, hey, look at the world. This is what we're doing in Ontario, right? So it's neat. I I like those pieces of what we do. I just realized um, we're here sitting in Jordy Machine's boardroom, and I haven't even given you an opportunity to kind of talk about the stuff you're actually making. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, well, you, you keep mentioning your nuclear stuff. What, what, what's going on there? Uh, well, let me uh, – and again, yeah, I'll give you a little history because it's an interesting transition and, Please, and touches yes. on, you know, kind of what I was talking about, niche market and that kind of thing. So when my grandfather and his brother started the company in 47, they, they started in their father's garage, small drill press, uh, shaper and a lathe. And they just, and they started doing work. They were right there in Meriton. There's had to be five paper mills up along the old canal. Um, so they were doing work for the paper mills. So, you know, rolls, then it became rolls and journals and it became breakdown work, repair work. Um, so, you know, as they grew, um, so did the size of the parts that they were doing. Um, then the paper mills closed. And so they said, okay, what do we do? What did we do there? And what can we do in another industry? So then you get into roles in the steel industry and you get into, you know, the bearing chocks and this and that and all this kind of thing, right? So the, the natural progression was very nimble and very, very smart of those guys, you know, like these are business like pieces today, but these guys were doing them in like the mid seventies, right? Like very, very nimble. But anyways, um, you know, as we grew in the steel industry um, and we got into um, 
some of that, like that higher level ISO, we were approached by a, a partner with potential opportunity for some nuclear work. So we got at the time the Z299 designation, which allowed us to do nuclear work. Um, and so we, we dabbled in nuclear for, uh, for quite a few years. Um, but the, when was that? When did you get that? That would have been um, at least a decade ago, if not longer. We, we touched the nuclear business at first. Yeah. Also, it's recently then. Yeah, yeah. So I think the first job we did was for like, and this is before my time. So I'm kind of speaking about history here, but I think it was for ACEL. Um, and they were doing these trash can, basically waste vessels, right? So um, interestingly enough, like, so now Drotti's, uh, oh, okay, so throughout the 90s, we had a very strong partnership with um, press, fac- like factories that were running presses, and we would basically go pull presses, bring them in, total refurbs, uh, and then uh, reinstall them. And we still do some of that work, but not as much, right? So, um, you know, that's been a difficult piece for Girardi's was kind of finding their footing again after that press work kind of went down. Um, so now we specific, we mostly do still steel mill work, right? So equipment in steel mills, replacement parts, brand new, repair. Um, we do marine work right now. I have the rudder shaft uh, and it's a green shaft. So brand new, hasn't been touched other than forged and rough turned. Um, this is going in a nuclear submarine. So very cool. So huge quality standard, uh, huge traceability. And, and that's something that Girardi's does very well, right? We work with our customer to resolve issues and essentially build to drawing. You know, and, and that, like, you know, companies try to find their values, their value, their mission statement, their purpose, their, like, their, you know, why do we exist? And, you know, what, what is it, right? Like, so, you know, we, we've, we've, we sort of define ourselves as a collaborative company, working with the customer to, to understand their customer's drawings at time, to help them look at their own drawings that they're, you know, cause these guys are just building an, a huge piece of equipment. There's going to be errors. There's going to be hey, this doesn't match that kind of situation. So we work with them to resolve those issues and make recommendations on things that, hey, this could be made easier, cheaper, like this or like that, right? Like if you let us do it out of a forging instead of a casting, if you let us do it out of a weldment instead of a casting or whatever that looks like, right? Um, so, you know, that's a that's a really neat piece of what Girardi's does. And that that's a piece that I love about Girardi's that I didn't create, but I love about it, right? Is that how do we work with somebody to create something that everybody wants, you know? Um, and then getting into the nuclear work. So we've been working quite a bit with companies like Promation, uh, Niagara Energy produ- products. Um, specifically, we've been working on this one product, which is the used fuel containers um, with NEP and, and uh, NWMO. And that's a really neat project because it's basically the prototyping and the understanding of how these vessels are going to survive in the earth with um, nuclear waste in them for the, you know, a million year lifespan, right? So this is a big project they're working on. I believe the kind of date of like their start date to actually, you know, switch the project on is 2045, something along this line. So we're in, they're in development stages and we're a big part of that. And I'll be honest, I love it. It's like, they're doing the coolest things, right? And they're asking us to be part of it. So it's really neat working with them. And I mean, 
the traceability and the quality requirements are just like have they've they've challenged Gerardis to be better and and I love that I love being challenged to be better right like it just makes you step up to the plate and go like yep let's go you know and I, I love that it brings the best out of people right if we I mean is that something if we go back to the idea that you know what can what could younger people expect if they come into manufacturing yeah. it's not you know th- there's a there's a bit of here's your job do it but there's a there are challenges there's problem solving there is a chance so to right. really uh, a chance to make things that make a difference or make a difference by making things is uh, yeah. this something that we really need to be absolutely absolutely i mean again you know going back to that pathway summit i i say to the parents like everything you own was made by us we make everything i'm such i'm so like it's just ego everywhere there right but it's true yeah pull out your phone what do you think that someone poured water on it and it grew we made the goddamn thing right like we made it humans made it we ripped that out of the earth we smelted it we turned it into a billet we melted it down again and turned it into a a, a forge we did that as humans right so Face the facts, like everything you come into contact with was made by us. It was either a machine or a machine that next now makes the machine. Like, you know, the concept of like robots are going to take over the earth. Oh yeah, who's going to make the robots? Who's going to program them? Magic. Right? Yeah. Maybe magic, we'll invent right? magic, right? So <laughs> it, it, it's like we, like as again, as manufacturers, we know this as a reality. It's getting it out to the kids and the parents and the next generation to tell them like, you can be part of the creation of the future, essentially, right? Like, you can be part of developing the future, and you're dead on. Like, if you like a challenge, if you like problem solving, this is this is the world for you. I'm an avid gamer. I love board games. I love RPG games. I love those kind of games. I'm, I, I, I'm not, a, like, I play my share of video games, but it's always been more strategy style board games like Axis and Allies, Risk. I mean, of course, I played Dungeons and Dragons back in the old days. Um, but, you know, like Catan. Um, you know, all these games that basically say, create something that creates and builds a resource. Take that resource and spend it on something else that will build more resources. What's yep. the strat? What's the goal? To win the game. Yep. I mean, what else is a month-to-month financial statement and a year-end goal of revenue and profits it's that it's build resources invest in resources turn those resources into revenue and and make a profit on the other side right so um it's really neat you have that one on your phone no that's a awesome no i we we played well I'll, i'll be honest total transparency we had to uh three me and my two buddies played probably Oh, God, I don't know. We played Catan three nights a week, probably two, three games a night for like an entire winter. Um, And we moved from brandy to rye to scotch to bourbon (laughs) as we did it, right? So this is like six months, three guys in a garage playing Catan. Oh, my God. Eventually, we boxed Catan up. And I put it in the attic of my garage, <laughs> and we haven't played it since because wow. we were like, okay, one of us is getting stabbed tonight, and I don't know who it is, right? Like, but awesome, awesome game. And you know, the thing is, is when you play against the same guys over and over again, you get to know their strategy. They know, and then you why, and you watch, and you think. And I mean, tell me that does not line you up for a world in business, right? Like, it, yeah. it really does, you know. And like, 
You know, this guy's put the robber on your main moneymaker. How are you going to get... I got a bottleneck on my Toshiba BP right now. How am I going to resolve that issue? It's no different, right? Like, it's no different. How am I going to continue to build revenue and resources with a bottleneck over here or with a constraint over here? I mean, it challenges you to, to, to find solutions to these things, right? And again, I mean... You know, that that in itself, that challenge uh, uh, and the solutions is an awesome piece of manufacturing because, as you guys know, it's everywhere, right? Like, nothing ever runs perfectly. And if it is, something's broken and you're just not seeing it, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. that's a fact. So, um, it always asks us to be better. It always continuous improvement. How, does, how do we be better? You know, like, mm-hmm. in every way, right? Like, better culture, better productivity more revenue, better customer service, better quality, right? Better sales, better everything, better treatment of our employees, better treatment in the community, right? Like it just, that ripple just continues to grow and grow and grow, right? So, I mean, it's a really great opportunity. Um, you know, I'm, I'm blessed. I'm lucky. I'm blessed to be in the seat I am, not just at Girardi Machine, but in the NIA, to, to be able to have these opportunities to talk with guys like yourselves and get a message out you know, and, and just pump the trades and talk about what I love doing. And, you know, it's so cool, right? Like, again, if you had to talk to me at 20 years old, I would not have told you this was what I would be doing, right? And then even if you had to talk to me before I bought the company, you there are items that I do that I'm just like, really? This is what I'm doing? This is unbelievable. I can't. And, like, this is one of them, right? Like, I would have never thought, oh, I'd be doing a web uh, podcast with, with uh, Trillium, you know, nor did I ever think I would be dealing with 200 seagulls on the roof of my company every spring, <laughs> right? Like, I, I, like you cannot, yeah. you can't predict what you're going to deal with. You want my dog? I'll just put her up there. Oh my God. The seagulls would eat the thing. I'm, I'm telling you. <laughs> like, I, they're, and they're back, right? Like I was just on the phone with both neighbors. I'm like, the seagulls are back. What are we doing about it? I put up a system on my roof um, and, I, and I got a flag going, but one day I was here on a Saturday. Must have been, I don't know, 800 flew off that roof. It was just like a stream for 30 seconds that left and then the stream came back and I'm just like, oh my God. And of course, wow. I move into the building and all you can hear is like, bah, 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 bah. like all our cars are just demoed all summer long, right? Uh, yeah, like that is not in an MBA course in university. It's no. not in no. a mechanical engineering course that teaches you management. It's not in the book. It's not. It comes to the person and their problem-solving abilities, right? Like how do I face this challenge? That comes down to you, right? So that kid that loves a word jumble – Loves a strategic video game, loves to hunt, loves to do this, like mechanically minded. I love working on my car. Right on. Come and make some parts. You want to see a gear? Have a look at that bull gear. Six feet in diameter, right? Yeah. I saw I saw this gear, and this is what I, again, I love it. Hoffman Engineering up in Hamilton, or sorry, uh, Cambridge. The gear was 35 feet in diameter. It was three feet thick. It had been cast in Romania, shipped to Canada. At the time I was looking at it, it had been on the machine for three weeks, 24 hours a day. They were cutting, they were hobbing the gears. It still had another two weeks and it was going down to a diamond mine in Peru. That was what blew my mind, was like where it was going, right? But the concept there is this is one piece of the, of the machine, the mechanism, the equipment 
So what the hell does that look like? Yeah. Right? Like that's just like holy crap, right? The like gear had a diameter of 35 feet. Yeah. This thing was like as yeah, it was as big around as like a, a, a like a big backyard. Like it was massive, man. Massive. In 24 hours, right? It was just like uh, uh, uh. like each of the teeth were probably like the root was probably six inches wide at its base. You know, it was just massive, right? Wow. But yeah, machine for 24 hours for five weeks, cast and shipped from Romania. What do you think that thing cost, right? Like that's the other one. I, you know, I have teachers that come through when you could do that and I would talk to them and say, what do you think that's worth? I don't know, 30,000. Oh my God. Like they, the money that is involved in this industry is insane. Right? Like it really is. Like, so we made two small clamps for post foods. Um, I mean, they were like 1400 bucks, right? A lot of work went into them. I said to my cousin Len, because we were looking at the price going, wow, 1400 bucks. It was time and material. So we did it to the job, right? But then you think about, okay, so they're going to put out how many boxes of mini wheats are going to pass those two clamps and how much of those boxes, I mean, how many and how much, right? Like, so that fourteen hundred bucks that's in in there is gonna is gonna produce one hundred forty thousand, two hundred eighty thousand million dollars, right? For two little fourteen hundred dollar clips. So like, it's not the money. Like the money is there, right? Like we are well happy to pay our machinists. That's the other one you guys must know. Like it's a well paying job, you know. Well, well, like my top guys are making thirty five, right? Like you know, I know in Toronto it's more than that. Right. But even my apprentices, like my goals typically bring them in at 17, pay them 17, 18, 18, 19, 19, 20, 20. And that's when they finish their apprenticeship. And that's when they get a good bump. Right. So like I, I typically try to tell them, I want you making 30 when you're 30. Right. Like and that like that puts goals on their in their minds. Right. And money goals in their minds. Right. So, yeah. you know, um, I think to a big, you know, going back to what is it that might help hold your people. I think it's recognizing them in their lives, right? So, like, you know, I know some of my guys go on a vacation. Um, and these, you know, they, they go to the cottage or they go here or they go there specifically at this time of year. And I'll, maybe I'll say, here, here's a little bump for, for the vacation, right? Like, and it, it's money they've planned for to spend already. But if I give them, you know, even 250 bucks or 500 bucks, and this is a guy who's making you money day in and day out, Right never scrapping jobs, like just a hard, good worker. You know what I mean? Here's 500 bucks. It's peanuts in the grand scheme of things. And they're like, man, now I can take this 500 that I had allotted for my vacation and leave it at home. And and I got this 500 to go on vacay with. That goes a long way, right? The, recognizing your young people, like I want to buy a new car. All right, let me help you save you, save up. Or I bought a new car and now I have a loan. You know what? Let me bump your pay for 25 cents. I mean, 25 cents like that's not going to kill you as a company but that kid is now yours forever because you're helping him pay that loan off right yeah you're helping him buy that next house like i'm I, that's the one i'm trying to think of is how do i build a um almost like a um a down payment plan for my young people right so i'm going to give you a 50 cent raise but you got to match that 50 cents you don't get that 50 cents i'm going to pull a buck out of your paycheck but we're going to put it in this savings account and in five years, you're going to have $20,000 and you're going to be able to put a down payment on a house. Okay. Like who else is going to tell them that? Maybe mom and dad, maybe not, right? Like 
how do we do that for our, our young people to help them grow and build, right? Especially now, like a North End St. Catharines house is, a North End St. Catharines house is, what, 600,000 oh, yeah. now? Yeah, I mean, right? it's, it's not. Yeah. It's, it's not $140,000 no. anymore, right? No, so. like, the, you know, you have to build it. Like the, and again, they're like, were you guys thinking about buying a house at 19 years old? You know, like, that's no. just it, right? No, we weren't. So we, they aren't. We know that because we're adults and they're still young people. We know they're not thinking of that, but they should be. And they're in a position to start thinking about it. So how do we just give them that little nudge to help them start thinking about it, right? So, you know, there's these little tweaks I think we can do as... I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's really about just your community, right? Like yeah. about being actively involved in your community. And, and you know what? Our, my community is, starts with Gerardi Machine and my family and extends out from there, right? Like my community is St. Catharines, but my community is Niagara, right? And, and, and then my community is Southern Ontario. And then it's Ontario. And then it's Canada, right? right. Like, yeah. you know, that community can, you know, we just have to look at it in the right way, I think, you know? See, what you were talking about there is actually sounds like the antidote to what's happening out there in the world of part-time work. Mm, mm. Uh, you have people, by and large, working for companies where they don't feel appreciated, yeah. where they're just like they're getting their hours cut. Yeah. You're a number on a sheet. And I think I don't think people I don't think young people realize that there are bosses out there like Mr. Tisdale. Yeah. And I think. I'm hoping more and more that there are more of guys like me, right? Like, again, I think this is part of our generation. I don't think it's specific to me. I think we, we uh, you know, I have a 50-year-old daughter, um, you know, going. So um, she is well aware of uh, the different faces of our world and the different cultures that exist, right? She has that in her world in high school. We didn't have, I didn't have that in high school. There wasn't, it was a very white high school, right? Yeah. So there was no, there was no consciousness of, um, uh, like there, it wasn't a question of like, oh, uh, uh, racism or prejudice. You didn't ha you didn't even have that challenge. There was nothing to go look at and say like, oh yeah, I'm this. It didn't exist. So, you know, it, the like these pieces of equality and stuff like that. I think what what you know generations before us fought against uh, and didn't understand. I think our our kids don't even have innately in them, right? They're very um, they don't have color lenses. I don't think. Do you know? Yeah. Um, and I think like you know again you know peers and contemporaries. I think we ultimately want better and better for you know like we're like parents, right? Like you want better for your kid than you, you your parents wanted for you. And that's why they're damn spoiled, because you can do better for your kid than your parents could do for you. But, man, I'm blessed, right? My parents treated me awesome. We, we had what we wanted. So how do you do better for your kid? You just do, right? But, you, again, it extends into your community. And you say, how can I do better for these kids? How can I do better for these people around me, right? And I think that's where a big piece of that comes from for me um, is just like, Again, like I said, how do I make people's lives better? Like, that's a good question, and I like it, and I want that challenge. How do I make people's lives better? You know, and I mean, that's starting to get a little on the hippie side, but you can do that everywhere, right? right? And even the variety store. Even when you call someone up and ask them, how are they doing? Like, so I do that. Like, you know, someone will call for me, and I'll say, hey, how are you today? And they pause. Like, huh? 
Like no one asks me that. And you're like, what? Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's enjoyable because it does make them pause in a sense. Right. But you can, because of that pause, I can tell that's not an action that happens to these people on the phone often. Right. Um, which says a lot about where we live, right. And what the world is like. But again, I think you come back to that. You think you're younger owners, you're younger influences and leaders you know i say owners you say boss but really what we're talking about are leaders right like a leader is who advances shop culture a leader is the one that looks at a young person and says i want to lead them to a greater life a better life that's what that a boss goes give me two of them and you're only getting 20 hours a piece you're getting no benefits you're getting no pension and i don't care if you come or go right i'll just find another one that's a boss you know what i mean and i think like that is starting to change as well, right? Like, I mean, I know my grandfather was a hard, hard guy on the shop floor. They called him White Lightning because he had a, he wore a white shirt and he'd tear down through the shop. And if he saw you doing shit, oh boy, you were, you were deep. I mean, we can't do that now. You know, like, I mean, who, who gets results from yelling at anybody anyways, right? Like, yeah. You got, I, I got a 50-year-old daughter. You want to see someone shut down? Start raising your voice, right? They just, boop, closed. I mean, I remember being 15 and yelled at. I knew what I was thinking. It had nothing to do with what my parents were saying. It had everything to do about them and what I wanted for them at that moment, right? Like, yeah. you know, you're like, at that age, like when people start yelling at you, you shut down. You yeah. don't, you, it's like, so, you know, we have to go about these things in different ways now, right? Because- the world is different. It probably happened back then, but they knew that Marino would fire him because in those days there were three other guys waiting to take that job on the lathe, right? Because they were coming yeah. from Yugoslavia, Italy, Germany, Czech, Russia, right? Like they, these were your old European tradesmen, right? Yeah. I mean, another big piece is that the government needs to, to, to recognize that we need skilled trades and newcomers from Can- to Canada are a great place to get those skilled trades. So, you know, when they're out, their, their, their policy, their point system is based on education and money and this and that. And it's like, okay, we get it. And yes, we need more engineers. And yes, we need more doctors. Yes, we need, because when it boils down to it, uh, did you guys get Don's report? And it was like basically showing the graph of 17-year-olds and like from now till 25 years from now. He showed showed me the slides, yeah. Hard plummet downward, right? So, I mean, like it doesn't matter even if if we just don't have the population. When we used to have, say, 100 coming out of grade 12, now we got 50. So even if one of them each comes to our industry, it's still only one. It's not two, it's not three, it's not five, right? So we need bodies from elsewhere. And like the, the government needs to recognize that those bodies are in Poland or the Middle East or, you know, like Mexico or wherever. I mean, bring them, bring them, please. You know what I mean? Like I, I again, like I'm a hippie at heart. You bring people, I will care for them. I don't care where they're from. I don't care what language they speak. You can build a community within that community. Right. Is that, is that what you were doing at that Polish event where we met? Well, I was there like sort of looking at the opportunities um, for connectivity between like the Polish consulate um, and the NIA and our membership. Um, but yeah, I mean that, you know, I, I have reached out to Natasha or Natalia rather. And I said, what does that look like? And she's like, it's really hard. So again, there's this problem, right? Of like, they'll say, well, th- there's this many tradespeople unemployed. And it's like, well, no, you're taking that whole batch and you're calling it tradespeople. But 
and you're recognizing that, you know, these people are laid off. Well, yeah, it's winter or whatever, right? Like, but they're not looking industry specific, I don't think, and saying like, oh my God, if I, if I looked at Niagara alone, this employer says they'd take two guys. That guy says he'd take three. That guy will take five. I mean, you know, pack a plane, f- send them over, right? Like they got jobs tomorrow, right? So they might in those stats too. And it's just, just, just what the stats are. They might lump construct construction and manufacturing exactly. together. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. If it's February and a construction electrician is laid off in, in, in July, they're going to be working 80 hours a week. That's so right. there's, yeah. there's, it's skewed. Yeah. Absolutely. It's just, it's just the way that it's just the way the stats no, are. And I it think doesn't too, always tell the whole yeah, story. You, right? And then you so. look at that sort of like, well, they don't need any more apprentices, but they have their um, levels, right. Of like one to one or two to one or this kind of thing. So like, it, it, again, it's skewed data. It's saying, Oh, we're filled up. We don't need any more, but there's all these other spots that actually could be filled up. Right. So, so real quick, Aaron, before we go, cause I don't, I think I may have been, doing the sound check while you and uh, Brennan were chatting about that art discussion. Oh, okay, yeah. Can can we, can we you guys pretend like we you know, are recap, just starting uh, to have that? Yeah, for sure. So I was saying that, um, you know, I've always felt that there's this connectivity between the arts and industry, right? I mean, classically, typically speaking, um, industry has promoted and, and supported the arts. I mean, way back to antiquity. Uh, you know, your merchants are the ones paying for these paintings and these murals and what have you. Um, so I really, you know, the piece there is that connectivity between arts and industry, but, you know, going into our high schools and finding those young art students who, you know, I mean, sadly, there isn't a huge career in the arts, you know, it typically has to sort of transition into graphic design, uh, tattooing, or, you know, some, I mean, some people are artists and they make a living at it. Absolutely. But, you know, if you had 20 art students in a classroom, Three of them would prosper from the arts directly. Maybe eight of them would end up in some kind of design or tattoo or this business or that business, sign making, whatever. Um, And then the rest of them would just have to go and find other jobs that may not be their passion. Right. And so, you know, I always think like these these young like you typically you see an artist, the desire to learn skills to create art. So they'll learn how to run a lathe. They'll learn how to weld. They'll learn how to do carpentry or what have you so that they can create something that they want to create. How do we take that desire to create and that um, penchant for practical experience and, and pull that into industry? Uh, we, need to, we need to connect that kid with industry when they're still 16 or 17, right? So they see there's an opportunity to actually get into a profitable career and still be able to build and mold and create and, and do these things, right? So, and again, that, oh, that comes back to problem solving, creativity, enjoying challenges, right? Your, your artist loves a challenge. How am I going to do it? I want to make a 15-foot sculpture. Oh, yeah? How are you going to do that? Well, they'll figure it out. Like, they will, right? Because they're innovative yeah. and they're creative. Um, but we, you know, I've thought about it, you know, marrying that within... Um, the school systems and finding a direct connection between, say, one school and an art class or an artist and a, a, a shop, a manufacturer of some type. You know, maybe they help them with welding. Maybe they do some machining. Maybe they just support them financially. But ultimately, what it would look like is an art show um, that would bring people from both the art world and industry into a joint and, uh, space to recognize each other. Right. Like 
um, you know, mom and dad will see like it, that this kid has either developed a relationship with this machinist or this welder or this designer or whatever, and that there's a future there because they'll see that guy drive up in his, you know, $70,000 pickup truck and be like, holy crap, how you, f- oh yeah, right, you make 40 bucks an hour. Okay, I get it. Oh, and you didn't have to pay for university. Gotcha. Right. You've been earning since you were 20, right? Like earning since you're 20. So we, we got to, you know, this connectivity, I think, within our community to what we do in manufacturing, that needs to get bigger, right? Like, um, and I think that's one of the pieces that we really need to work on is how do we connect our community, our moms, dads, uh, you know, the kids with what is what manufacturing is because it, it is a lucrative business and it employs a ton. Well, that's our biggest economic driver here in Niagara. Like, yeah, okay, tourism does well all year. I don't think so. Like you sell a million dollar job or a half million dollar job out of your shop. I mean, you know, if your revenues are, you know, $500,000 a month, who's else, who else is doing that? Maybe a major retailer, maybe a major retailer, you know, but tourism, okay, maybe July and August, not the rest of the year. Shops in, in, in Ontario are regularly turning over the same revenue, you know, 60K, 80, 100, two, four, six, you know, like every month, right? And bringing in a yearly revenue of like, you know, 5 million, 7 million, 10, 12 million. And what they're employing like 60 people, right? Like that's the insane part is they are generating so much revenue, you know, but b- big piece of that is machine or uh, material. Well, that's got to come from somewhere. So that's being... That's a casting coming from somewhere. That's a forging coming from somewhere, right? So the the extent of that employment just like that it just ripples outward, right? Like I always put it like that. I love when the government throws money at infrastructure. I love it because they're going to do the four hundred six. Okay, great. Let's do the four hundred six. Every one of those guys is getting paid. Every one of those guys is stopping at the Avondale. Maybe he's buying a pack of smokes. Maybe a pack of gum. Maybe some chips. Pop. Every guy's stopping at the Timmy's on the way, grabbing a coffee, grabbing a donut. Every guy's going to the Wendy's or McD's or Subway, whatever, for lunch, pizza, whatever. They're putting that money that the government has thrown at infrastructure back into their immediate community. You know who's working those jobs? My daughter, your daughter, his daughter, that guy's daughter, right? Or son or whatever are working those jobs, keeping them here, keeping them paid, these young people. Right, while they go to college or university or while they're in high school. So again, it just like I love that machine, right? Of, of how we can take income from outside of Niagara, turn that revenue back in and push it back out in Niagara and it just feeds itself back downward, right? Like we're all making payments here in our neighborhood. Not to like, you know, you're buying your truck, you're buying it here. Right? You're buying your home, you're buying it here. You're paying your property tax, you're paying your bills. It's all staying here. Right. Like, I love that. I love that because it keeps our like our biggest fear here in Niagara is that all the young people move away and it's just us old people. And, and, and that's it. Right. Like and Niagara will be depressing as hell if we're a bedroom community with this little tourism arm. I mean, oh, my God. Right. It'd be sad business. But um, I'm I'm looking at the time here and I'm realizing we've been talking for way more than an hour. I only You're booked an me. hour of your time. I barely like talking at all. Man. <laughs> 
No, Aaron, thank you. I my, really do my appreciate pleasure. It. Yeah, absolutely. You, you always your... got a you always got a mascot in me. I I, I mean, I, I love to speak about what I do. I love to speak about the trades in general. I love to speak about what I see um, as as the most amazing pieces of us in Ontario. Right, like we are a machine here. Right, and and anything I can do to help spread that message is uh, is my pleasure. You know, and we are going to help you do that. Right on. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, Nick. Thanks. Thanks, Brandon.